So let's talk about financial literacy, making sure that you never go broke, and personal finance. So when we talk about personal finance, everybody has their own ways of managing their money, whether this might be good or bad. So some people pay close attention to what they're spending their dollars and pennies on. Meanwhile, other people just spend money like crazy, put things on their credit card, and are surprised at the end of the day how much they actually ended up spending. Of course, when it comes to personal finance, common sense plays a big part in your financial life. That's why some of the things that we will talk about is going to be your net worth, how you can calculate this, which is an easy system to calculate it. All you need to do is take your assets minus your liabilities to come out with your net worth. And then we're also going to talk about your debt, how you can manage it, making sure that you have goals planned and the specific timeframes between those goals. Also, we're going to talk about investing. And then we're also going to keep it lighthearted by talking about your health, how that plays a big role in your personal financial life. And then also we're going to talk about lottery tickets, gambling. Is that something that you need to stay away from or is that something that you need to participate in? So let's just get started. So when I think of personal finance, I'm thinking of common sense, making sure that you're not spending money that you don't have and always making sure that you're educating yourself when it comes to personal finance by, for example, reading books. One thing that you need to do is making sure that you know what your net worth is when it comes to your personal finance. An easy way to do this, of course, is by taking your assets minus your liabilities to come out with your net worth. This is something that you can do on a piece of paper. But in the digital age that we live in, why would you do that by writing it down? Because you can use websites such as mint.com and personal capital. These websites allow you to connect to your different bank accounts and investment accounts to see your assets and your liabilities to come up with your net worth. Now, you can sign up for both and it's free to sign up. Sometimes it might be a little bit of a trouble to connect some of your accounts but overall, you should easily be able to connect all of your bank accounts to mint.com and even personal capital. There are more sites than these two, but these two are the ones that I prefer to use. Now, if you are against connecting your bank accounts to a site like mint.com, then yes, you would have to go the route of writing this down on a piece of paper or maybe even in an Excel spreadsheet making sure that you have your assets minus your liabilities. But Mint.com and Personal Capital just make it easier for you to have it in a digital form where you just log in, hit refresh, so it pulls your up-to-date information of your bank accounts and investment accounts, and then you have your net worth presented to you. And if you're self-employed, make sure you have an account set up with QuickBooks Self-Employed. It's less than 20 bucks a month, but it's well worth the cost. Because in QuickBooks Self-Employed, all you have to do is log into the system after you've signed up and then make sure you add your income and your expenses. It's automatically going to calculate the taxes for you that you need to pay. Because if you're self-employed, you need to pay quarterly taxes. By me adding my income and then paying attention to how I'm trending, even with my expenses, it allows me to make changes based on the money that I'm making outside of work as somebody who's self-employed, and it makes it easy for me during tax time to just pull up all that information, download it from QuickBooks, and then do my taxes. So you've been able to work on figuring out your network, and if you're self-employed, you've been using QuickBooks Self-Employed. Now, the next thing to look at are the goals that you're setting up for yourself. When it comes to goals, I look at goals as short-term, mid-range, and long-term. And it's always good to have goals because goals hold you accountable. 
and goals give you a blueprint to your future. So a short-term goal is anything less than a year. A mid-range goal is a year to five years. And then a long-term goal is five plus years. So an example of a short-term goal would be anything such as saving up money to buy gifts or even saving up money to buy shoes for yourself. A mid-range goal might be something such as making sure that you have your car paid off or even saving money for a down payment on a house. Now, a long-term goal, five plus years, I look at those as, for example, investing. You're investing for your future, which might be 10 to 20 plus years. Now, you could go through life by not having anything planned or not having any type of goals. That, of course, wouldn't be smart because if you think about it, where you go to school, you have to plan that. If you want a specific car, you have to make sure you do the research and then save up enough money to buy that car. Even when it comes to buying a house. Buying a house is not like going to the grocery store and buying a bag of potato chips. Because a bag of potato chips might only cost $3, which is something that you can do without even thinking about it. But a house requires more research, planning, and making sure that you set up a goal of buying a house in a specific location Also making sure that the neighborhood is a neighborhood that you want to live in. So definitely having goals and making sure that you plan for those goals, that's always the right thing to do. Now with these goals, of course you can list them on a piece of paper or you can use an online resource. But with these goals, you need some money. And where do you put your money that are tied to these goals? The easiest way to break this down is by using a checking account, a savings account, and then your investment account. So the short-term goal which is less than one year, everything that's in your checking account should go to your short-term goals. Now, the mid-range goal, one to five years, that's where your savings account plays a big role. And then long-term, five plus, that's your investment account. So that might be your 401k, your IRA, or even a traditional brokerage account. So you will use your checking account for day-to-day expenses, so groceries, paying off your rent, paying off your car note, and then your savings account, that's what you're using for making sure that you're saving enough money for a down payment, for example, on a car or maybe even a house. And then, of course, your long-term, that's going to be your investment account with TD Ameritrade, Ally, Robinhood, and then the list goes on. You might be thinking about, okay, what about a certificate of deposit or a money market account? I would stick that under the savings category because nowadays, You get such a low interest rate on any of these accounts that you can just stick with the savings account. So if you don't want to use the savings account, go ahead and use a CD or use a money market account. Now let's talk about debt. Because when it comes to debt, you might have student loan debt, you might have a car note that you need to pay off, or you might also have unexpected costs that might come up. The two most unexpected costs that always come up are going to be medical and anything that might happen with your car if you own one. That's why your savings account is extremely important. Always make sure that you have some money saved in your savings account because you never know what might happen. And now when it comes to paying down your debt, people always ask me, should I pay down my debt or should I invest? Which one should I do? And my thing is you need to do both at the same time. You need to pay down your debt while you're investing. Because when it comes to investing, investing takes time, such as any other thing that you are doing in life. You need to get good at investing. You need to know the basics. You need to know the fundamentals. You need to have the knowledge when it comes to investing. You only get that knowledge with time. So I wouldn't recommend paying down all your debt first and then starting to invest. No, while you're paying down your debt, 
make sure that you invest a small amount of money just to get into the habit of investing your money and growing your wealth. When it comes to spending money, do you think that I believe in living below your means, clipping coupons, or penny pinching? Now, if you're the type who likes to clip coupons, definitely go ahead and keep doing that activity. But I've always been of the mindset that I just need to make more money. So anything that I can do when it comes to even having a second job or even having a part-time job or trying to make money on the internet, anything that I can do to make additional money, I'd rather do that instead of living a frugal lifestyle or living a fire lifestyle. Because I never wanted to limit myself when it comes to spending money. Now I get it. You still want to make common sense decisions with the money that you do have. But I've never been a fan of just penny pinching. Just make more money or make sure that you're spending your money wisely. So now you have your checking account set up. You also have your savings account. And when it comes to the savings account, I recommend having six months to a year's worth of your salary saved up. The reason why I say six months to a year, a year would be even better, is because anything can happen right now in this global economy that we live in. You can get fired or you can quit your job. As long as you have some money saved up in your savings account that you can live off of, you'll be less stressed out. The reason why I say 12 months would be better, if you just got laid off, the first few weeks or even the first month, you want to take some time off, maybe even travel and have fun. If you have your money saved up in your savings account, there's going to be less stress involved in you having to worry about money. Also, when you're not working, more than likely, you're going to be spending more money than when you were working because you're not going to sit at home and sulk and not do anything. You might want to go out. You might want to go to the zoo. You might want to go to that event that you always planned on going to or even a museum or anything that might cost you any type of money. You might also be spending more money on going to different restaurants. So 12 months of your salary saved, that would be the best approach. Now I get it. Not everybody's going to be able to save 12 months of salary. So six months, that's the standard. And even with the six months, you can take some time off after you got laid off or even after you quit a job. Go visit your family. Even if you have family in different states or in different countries, you're going to be able to do that with the money that you've saved as your emergency fund. And now from the savings account, we transition over to investing. So investing should be looked at as a long-term goal. So five plus years, 10 plus, even 20 plus. When it comes to investing, quickest way to start, of course, is by looking at the company that you work at. If that company offers a 401k with a employer match, definitely start there first. After you've started contributing to your 401k and you have some capital left to invest, you can look into investing in an IRA or a Roth IRA, which of course stands for an individual retirement account. And then even if you have some more money left and you want to invest but have some fun investing, that's when you can open up a brokerage account with a company such as Robinhood and start to trade stocks, bonds, any type of securities or commodities that you've always thought about investing in. And of course, if you're planning on buying a house or even getting a loan for a car or for some medical expenses, your credit is going to play a pivotal role. It's easy nowadays to guess what your credit score is because there's apps that you can use such as CreditWise or Credit Karma that will list your credit score. Anything you can do to boost that up into the 800s and you're good to go. You're perfect. So making sure that your credit utilization is low, making sure that you pay all of your credit cards on time and your loans, and making sure that you're not delinquent, of course, and of course, making sure that you don't have 
too many accounts open. Now, it is good to have a few different accounts open because credit bureaus are able to see that you've been able to handle different loans successfully by paying them off and closing them also. So making sure that you pay everything on time, making sure that you're not utilizing too much of your credit card and using these credit score apps such as Credit Karma and CreditWise, it's going to show you what you need to do in order to increase your credit score. Very intuitive, very easy to use, and you'll be able to track it on a frequent basis to see if the changes that you're making are having a positive impact on your credit score or a negative impact. Also, if you want to see your credit reports from the three credit bureaus, which are going to be Experian, Equifax, and TransUnion, make sure you go to annualcreditreport.com to get a free copy. You can get one free copy from each bureau every single year. There are websites online that have you pay in order to get some of your credit information. Don't do that. Just go to that website and get your free credit report. And also, it's a good thing to always pay attention to your credit report because you want to see if your credit report contains correct information because your credit report is going to show you all the accounts that you have open and if you've been able to pay them on time. Now, if there are any discrepancies or anything that looks off or is wrong, you can always open a case to have that double checked. And this is extremely important because your credit report has an immediate impact on your credit score. So if anything is off, make sure you handle that immediately. And let's talk about your help when it comes to personal finance. Because on first notice, you wouldn't tie your health to your personal finance. But if you delve in deeper, you will know that your health plays a big role in your personal finance. Just from a health standpoint, if you eat healthy, if you live a healthy lifestyle, you'll be able to live longer. You'll be able to enjoy your wealth longer that you've been building up through your investments. Also, if you pay attention to what you eat, you don't go out to eat all the time, you cook your own meals, you're going to be able to save money by not going to all these different restaurants. And of course, if you live a healthy lifestyle, more than likely, your medical expenses are going to come down because you're less inclined to have medical issues the older you get. Because we only have one body. Think about it like this. This is what Warren Buffett said. If you could only have one car in your life, how would you treat that car? That's the same way you need to look at your body. We only have one body this lifetime. And it's of the utmost importance that we treat it the right way by eating healthy and making sure that we're also exercising. So when it comes to buying lottery tickets and even gambling, is that something that you need to stay far away from or is that something that you need to participate in? Growing up, I always stayed away from gambling and buying lottery tickets because my uncles and my grandpa would always buy lottery tickets and they would win like a couple of dollars here, a couple of dollars there. And I always looked at it as a waste of time because you could take that money that you're investing in buying lottery tickets or even gambling and you can invest it and start to grow your wealth. But one thing that lottery tickets and of course gambling does for you is it gives you hope. It makes you happy. If you take a calculated risk, of course, you don't want to be the type who spends all your money gambling or buying lottery tickets. But even I, when I look at the Powerball lottery and I see that it's over a billion, that always makes me think about buying lottery tickets. So yes, if you're the type who wants to buy lottery tickets or wants to gamble, go ahead and do that, but make sure that you take calculated risks and don't spend all your money gambling and also buying lottery tickets. So those are some of the big things that you need to think about when it comes to personal finance.
Now, your personal financial life needs to be flexible. It should not be rigid. You need to be able to look at it and make changes and make tweaks. Because throughout life, we will all change. So your hobbies might change. Your interests might change. You might get a family or you might move to a different state that has a higher cost of living. Or you might even want to move to a different country. Always make sure that your personal finance never stays rigid. Make sure that you can always look at your expenses or even your assets. And always keep in mind that nothing will stay the same. It will change. And hopefully it will change for the better, of course. Hopefully you will make more money. Hopefully you will be able to invest some of that money, grow your wealth. And before you know it, you'll be financially free. Let's talk about my dividend portfolio. Now, this portfolio is something that I've set up a few years ago. And even though it's a dividend portfolio, so it only contains dividend-paying stocks, I'm also going to add some growth stocks to it in the future. Now, the reason why I set this up was because I wanted to try something new back in the day. And when I learned about dividend-paying stocks, it sparked my interest. So I created a separate account because I have the 401k, I have the Roth IRAs, etc., etc. But with my brokerage account that I'm using, currently Ally, I set up my dividend portfolio. And now it's a portfolio that manages itself. So I'm getting passive income through dividend payments. And those dividend payments automatically get reinvested. So my dividend income is like a snowball effect. Also, dividend investing to me is fun. It allows me to push my knowledge when it comes to analyzing companies using fundamental analysis, of course, and then buying them when they're selling at a discount. Also, dividend investing gives me confidence when it comes to investing because I'm in the driver's seat and I'm making the decisions. It's not like when you invest in an index fund, an ETF, or a mutual fund where you have a fund manager that's making all the decisions. Also, if you know how to analyze companies and you know how to invest in the stock market, you're less likely to get taken advantage of because you will come across people that tell you to buy specific stocks. So you might hear friends tell you to buy specific stocks or even family members. Or you might even go to a financial planner and he's going to tell you what you need to invest in. But if you have the knowledge already because you've been investing yourself, you'll be able to pick up people that are trying to bamboozle you a lot faster. And then, of course, the last thing also, besides the passive income that I generate that keeps growing with my dividend portfolio, I can also take my investment portfolio and then pass it down to, let's say, if I had kids or even passing it down to family members. And then once they get it, they don't have to start from point zero because they already have an investment account that's spitting out passive income for them on a frequent basis. So just looking at my dividend portfolio that I currently have at Ally.com, about 22 dividend-paying stocks, actually 21 dividend-paying stocks. And then I also have a BND, which is the Vanguard Total Bond Market ETF. Now, with the other stocks that I have in my portfolio, I'm getting dividend payments, of course. But then with my BND ETF, I'm getting interest payments. And I get these also on a monthly basis. The 21 stocks that I have are in various sectors of the stock market. Now, if I look at my dividend payments for the year, you can see that I've been getting dividend checks on a frequent basis. When I did the calculation, I've received about nine. Are you tired of feeling lost in the world of trading and investing? Get informed and inspired with the Talking Trading Podcast. I'm Louise Bedford, and I'll help you navigate the markets like a pro. 
Tune in each week and subscribe now at talkingtrading.com.au or on your favourite podcast app. Or check out the link in the show notes. Talking Trading, this is how traders excel. Five dividend payments so far. And if I look at it from a year standpoint, I will receive over 100 dividend checks, which comes down to around 8.3 dividend payments per month. When I looked at my previous month, I've generated a little over $220 in dividend income. And my dividend income gets reinvested into buying more dividend paying stocks. So every single month, my dividend income grows. So next month, it's going to be more than $220 in dividend income. So when it comes to the dividend payments that I do get, currently I'm enrolled in a DRIP at Ally, a DRIP standing for a dividend reinvestment plan. This pretty much means that whenever I'm getting a dividend payment from a specific company, let's say Coca-Cola, that dividend automatically gets reinvested into buying more shares of Coca-Cola. Now, this is a great thing because you're not only getting dividend payments, but you're automatically buying more dividend paying stocks with your dividend. So it allows you to grow your dividend income. But one thing that you have to pay attention to is that even though drip is a good way to start when it comes to reinvesting your dividends, you still want to make sure that you're buying companies when they're selling at a discount. So you don't want to buy a company when it's overpriced. In that case, it would be better to not be enrolled into DRIP and just receive the dividend into your account. Do your fundamental analysis, having those companies that you want to buy on a watch list and then only buy them when they're selling at a discount. But if you're just starting out when it comes to investing in dividend paying stocks, just go the DRIP route. Don't worry about making sure that you collect all that dividend income and then keep investing it in companies that are selling at a discount. Because in the beginning, your dividend income is going to be small. It might only be a few dollars. So don't worry about buying those companies that are selling at a discount with just a few dollars. Also, not all brokerage firms allow drip. So always double check the investment firm that you're investing with if they allow drip investing. So when is it the best time to buy? Because I've already said you only want to buy as a value investor that's investing for dividend paying stocks. You only want to buy when the company is selling at a discount. So the first question is, how can you tell if a company is selling at a discount? If a stock is trading for a dollar, does that mean that the stock is cheap? On the other hand, if a stock is trading for a thousand dollars, does that mean that the stock is expensive? It's going to be hard to tell if you don't know what the underlying value is of that particular stock. Not because a stock is trading for a dollar doesn't mean that it's cheap. You still need to know the underlying value, of course. Think about it like this. Let's say you have a dollar in your pocket and a friend comes up to you and he wants to sell you a piece of bubble gum, just one piece, and he tells you, you know what, I'll sell it to you for a dollar. Now you're going to look at him crazy because a piece of bubble gum is worth less than a dollar. So you could get a piece of bubble gum for, let's say, 10 cents. So a dollar, it's way too overpriced. On the flip side, let's say you have $10,000 to spend and you want to buy a new car. And then all of a sudden you see that they are selling new Tesla cars for $10,000. That's a steal of the century because Tesla cars are worth more than $10,000 on the market. So you're actually getting the Tesla car at a discount. That's the way you need to look at investing in dividend paying stocks. You need to know what the value is of the stock before you actually go and add it to your watch list and then purchase it also.
There are different ways that you can tell how much a company that's trading on the stock market is worth. Some investors like to look at, for example, the book value of a company. Other investors like to look at the earnings of a company and then they look at the P.E. ratio which is something that I've talked about in the past. The P.E. ratio is a great way of trying to figure out what the company is worth that is trading on the stock market because you're looking at the net income that a company generates, also called the earnings. If a company can increase its earnings, it also means that a company is going to be worth more. Let's say your friend has a company that generates $10,000 in net income every single year. He wants to sell it to you. So this business, let's say it's an e-commerce business, runs on autopilot, 10K a year flat. If he wants to sell it to you, and how much are you willing to pay for it? Let's say he wants to sell it for you for $1,000. You're spending on buying a company for $1,000 that generates $10,000 per year. So you'll pretty much have your invested capital back within two months. And anything after that is gonna be pure profit. Now, let's say that same friend came up to you and he told you, you know what? I have an e-commerce business, it's not doing too well, Every single month, I need to spend 5K in advertising just to get a few sales. So I spent 5K, but I'm not making any type of money. And I want to sell this business to you for $1,000. You're going to look at him strange and tell him that, no, I'm not going to buy a business that's not even generating any income. So that's why the earnings of a company is extremely important, how much net income a company can generate. And a great company can generate a net income that they can keep increasing year over year. On the stock market, we look at the P.E. ratio, the price divided by the earnings ratio. This ratio tells you the multiple of how much you're willing to pay for the earnings of a company. So a P.E. ratio of, let's say, 15, that means that you're willing to pay 15 times the earnings of a company. In essence, that means that you will get your original capital back within 15 years, if you look at it from the earnings standpoint. Now, I like to look at companies that have a P.E. ratio of 20 or less, 15 or less is even better. So that's how I decide when a company is trading at a discount or when a company is overvalued. Now, when do I sell a dividend-paying company? I sell a dividend-paying company if that company changes or updates its business model into a space that they're not familiar with. For example, if a company produces chocolate chip cookies and then all of a sudden they want to expand the business and they want to jump into the technology sector, that's a big red flag because this company is used to generating their income from selling chocolate chip cookies, but now they're jumping into a whole new industry. From a financial standpoint, you can already tell that there's going to be a lot of ups and downs, which might affect the dividend that they pay. Another reason why I also sell my dividend paying stocks is when the company cuts the dividend. So anytime something might happen economically, or even if the company is going through some turmoil and it affects their net income, they might slash their dividend that they pay to their shareholders. And then the last reason why I sell my dividend paying stocks is if a company stops paying a dividend. So there are companies that have been paying a increasing dividend year over year, but then all of a sudden there might be an economic crash, an economic downturn, and they just stop paying a dividend. That's a big no-no because companies pride themselves on paying out dividends to their shareholders. And especially if it's a blue chip company, those companies want to keep their shareholders. And a big way to keep their shareholders is by paying out a frequent dividend. Now, if a company pays out a dividend, but they might not increase their dividend as fast or even faster than inflation, I still hold on to that dividend. So for example, I bought stock in Walmart 
And ever since I bought stock in Walmart, they've been pretty much lagging with their dividend growth. But the dividend that I do get, I just take that dividend income and invest it in another dividend paying company. So how do I check on dividend stocks? Because on average in the US, if you buy a dividend paying company, you get a quarterly dividend payment. So every quarter, that company that you bought is going to pay out a dividend. Some companies might only pay twice a year, others pay monthly, but on average, quarterly. Let's say you have a big list of companies in your portfolio, 30, 40, 50. It's going to be harder to manage and trying to figure out, okay, I'm getting my dividend payments. Are they increasing? Are they staying the same? Are they decreasing? Or did one of the companies actually stop paying a dividend? The way that I do it is I export all my dividend income in, let's say, an Excel spreadsheet. And then I sort it by month and by company, which allows me to see if the dividend payments that I've been getting for a specific company are actually increasing or not. Now, if they are not, like I said, I hold on to them. If they end up getting cut, I sell the company. And then if they stop paying a dividend, I sell that company also. For example, in the past, I had shares in Disney, but then the Disney company stopped paying a dividend. And I saw that by exporting all the dividend income in my Excel spreadsheet and then sorting it and filtering it the correct way. And I noticed that Disney was not paying a dividend anymore. So I ended up selling them. So how many dividend paying companies should you have in your dividend portfolio? The more you have, the harder it is going to be to manage them because it's not only about looking at the dividend paying stocks that you have in your portfolio, you still need to stay up to date with them at least once a year because every single year companies put out their annual report. So you do want to go through the annual report and make sure that those companies are still dividend paying companies that you want to have in your dividend portfolio. I recommend having between 20 to 30 dividend paying companies in your portfolio, anything over 30, and it might get a little bit harder to manage. But 30 is still a good number, 20 to 30, because it allows for diversification. You don't want all your eggs in one basket when it comes to investing. And when it comes to dividend investing, you don't want all your eggs in one industry basket. Now, if you enjoy my content on stock market investing, then be sure to follow my podcast and check out my show notes below for exclusive premium content that will take your investing to the next level. In the show notes, I also link to my books, my Instagram so you can follow me, and my YouTube channel. I'll catch you in the next episode.